Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. At the annual Norton Spear Radio membership and fundraising event last October, one of the free giveaways for everyone was a complimentary copy of a twice-monthly publication called The Progressive Populist. And one thing leads to another. So today for Spirit in Action, we're headed by phone down to right near Austin, Texas, to speak to Jim Cullen, the editor of the paper. Jim founded the Progressive Populist back in 1994 after lots of newspaper work in Louisiana and Texas, including as associate editor of the Texas Observer. We'll explore the history, impact, and future of populism and its merger with the progressive ideals and how this is nurtured by media sources outside the mainstream, like the Progressive Populist. We'll get Jim Cullen on the phone in just a moment, but first we'll listen to Charlie King and Karen Brando telling the alternative progressive news via their song, The News, The Blues, and The People, Take Two. Then on to Jim Cullen. Each morning on the road I read the paper And with every line I feel my spirits sink Unemployment increase, murder in the Middle East, homeland insecurity, suspending civil liberties, landmark legislation in the nation makes it criminal to think. Each headline highlights one more crooked caper, and each byline boasts of one more sordid scheme. If Bush gets into one more war, I'm getting out. If Congress one more fascist act I'm gonna scream Feels like everything is falling apart at the seams Do you know what I mean? But then I go and see Julie up in Milwaukee A peace action devotee Or Pat and Bernie, San Francisco, California Singing their hearts out for solidarity I remember Tom Wilson and Juanita Nelson And the war tax they Feeling so much better that I'm ready for the five o'clock news. Oh no. The anchor man resembles Robert Redford. His sidekick looks like Chelsea Clinton's mom. She reports compellingly on a local spelling bee. Tune in at 11 because they're revving up for coverage of a prom. It's a sitcom. The weatherman's one liners make my head hurt. And the local team's been given up for dead The film reviewer interviews a chimp I'm getting out The prom reporters voting for their queen I'm going to bed If you tuned in for the news You've been badly misled Now it's 
it's back to you, Ted. I want to hear about Rebecca, Jeff, and Martha marching in Ann Arbor. Mike and Sue tearing up Toledo. They don't cover Chris and Sarah, Francisco y Anita, El Pueblo Unido, jamás será vencido. Or Father Roy Bourgeois, Columbus, Georgia, shutting down the SOA. If you believe the TV, you think democracy is slipping away. I got something to say. say we it. still got Wash and Kosh, Philippash, Connecticut, fight for worker safety and health. United for a fair economy is challenging monopoly and trying to spread around a little corporate wealth. There's a peace demonstration in every nation. 20 million marches can't be wrong. So let's keep on fighting the good fight, people. Let's keep singing our song. You won't read it in the paper, won't see it on the news, but you just might hear it in a talking blues. Thanks for the energy keeping me singing these songs. Jim, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. A populist is a less well-known thing these days. Could you tell me a little bit about populism in the United States? And, of course, we're going to lead up to the progressive populist. Yes. Well, the populist movement basically started in the 1880s in the Midwest and the South. Basically, it was a reaction against a lot of the mercantile interests that were controlling the daily life. Particularly, the farmers had trouble with the railroads getting their uh, commodities to the market and the stores that had monopolies on uh, their business. So they got together where they could and built a movement as a reaction against the Democrats in the South, basically, and a lot of times it was against the Republicans in the North. They built a political movement that actually elected some people to Congress and won legislative seats. And one thing they did, is largely forgotten now, is the poor whites sharecroppers made an alliance with black sharecroppers in the South and really threatened the establishment in the South. And that's one of the reasons after the, I think it was the 1892 election, that Democrats passed segregation and Jim Crow laws to prevent whites and blacks from getting together again. And that was largely successful in breaking up the populist movement. The high point of the populist movement was probably the 1892 and 1896 elections when they ran William Jennings Bryant. I think he he was the populist candidate. Uh, Anyway, they, they ran a candidate that got a large number of votes, but they were never able to defeat the Democrats and Republicans. And basically, for a while... They were competitors to the progressive movement, which actually grew up as a Republican alternative to populism. You're probably familiar with that up in Wisconsin. Where well, the- of course. <laughs> Home of progressivism, isn't it? I, I mean, yeah. and pretty soon I'm going to have a program on the Fighting Bob Fest, which celebrates Bob LaFollette, who was key behind the progressive movement up here. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Teddy Roosevelt was an ally of the progressives and a progressive Republican. And they kind of, I think, considered the populists to be rubes out in the fields. But eventually, the populist movement, after they were defeated by the Democrats in the South, and what they called back then the the combines, what we'd, we'd now consider the corporatists, pushed the progressives out of power in the Republican Party, the progressives joined with the populists to continue the, the movement, which kind of culminated in what became the New Deal coalition after the Great Depression in the 30s. One thing that happened to the populist movement is it's, a lot of times it gets discredited because the populists 
or some of the leaders of the populist movement in the 1890s later joined the Democratic Party and became joined up with the segregationists. So they got a bad reputation on that score. But that was largely after they realized that uh, they weren't going to be able to get anywhere by preaching racial harmony, that it wasn't, just wasn't going to work. And so a lot of them made cynical decisions to embrace the Jim Crow movement and go for white supremacy. But it was an interesting epoch and a movement that was absorbed largely into the Republican and the Democratic parties in the early 20th century. And then uh, a lot of them ended up with the Democrats when uh, FDR was elected and re-elected in the New Deal. What I'm getting from you is there's gradations of difference, populist and progressive, and you haven't used the word liberal. You did refer to racist, segregationist policies as kind of anti-populist. So what does populist actually mean besides being popular? Well, the populist movement, my way I frame it, is that they believe that people are more important than corporations and that the government is needed to protect workers and small businesses from corporate predators and people who want to create monopolies. So populists can be liberal. We're certainly in the liberal side. But particularly after World War II, the progressive movement kind of took on a, a meaning of being more economically on the left where liberals were considered more towards the center and were less likely to take on corporate structures. So I, I think liberalism is compatible with progressivism and populism. But then the populism kind of got a bad reputation, particularly in the 50s and 60s, because they became more identified with people like George Wallace, who was a, actually a, started out as a relatively progressive candidate in uh, the 40s, he worked for, I think it was Big Jim Folsom, who was the governor of Alabama, and a, a relatively progressive guy. But then he got beat by, a, Wallace got beat by a candidate who beat him over the head and shoulders, basically, with some of the progressive agenda that he had, and basically said he was too easy on the blacks, and he didn't use that term either. So Wallace realized that to get ahead in Alabama in the 50s and 60s, he'd have to become a, an ardent segregationist that he became. So for a long time, populists were considered synonymous with, you know, racists and demagogues. And that was one of the things when we started the progressive populist in 1994, I started calling people to let them know what we were doing. And they, some liberals said, well, why would you call yourself a populist? And, you know, they still identified that with being George Wallace or Strom Thurmond or some of those right-wing segregationists. And we wanted to reclaim the good reputation of populism that we think still exists or was worth reclaiming. So the way I take it, you know, people more important than the corporations or the monopolies, all that. So people who are working outside those power structures have at least some superficial claim to the title of populist. So does that mean a Russ Perot or Donald Trump or Bernie could be considered populist reasonably under that definition? Well, I think Ross Perot probably would be considered a populist because he really was talking about trying to keep business in the United States, and he, he was campaigning against the North American Free Trade Act, which we think did rip apart the industrial base of, of our country. Donald Trump, I think, is just portraying himself as a populist, and his actions since he's become president kind of indicate that a lot of it was just talk to fool people into voting for him pool workers in a voting forum. As in drain the swamp and put it in the cabinet. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, he has repudiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership and talks about renegotiating the North American Free Trade Act. But I don't have any confidence that if he does renegotiate NAFTA, that he would look after the interests of working people. He basically looks after his own interests. And what do you think about Bernie? I think Bernie is a progressive popular candidate, and the success he had shows that there is a groundswell of popular support for someone who runs an authentically populist candidacy. I think he may have made a mistake in not starting from the beginning, identifying himself with the populist movement or calling himself a new dealer, rather than, if you recall, he talked about how he wanted us to be more like Denmark and Scandinavia, which I think may have turned off a lot of Americans saying we don't need to model ourselves after European society. When we had a perfectly good model in Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal and Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, which largely finished off a lot of the things that Franklin Roosevelt contemplated starting. But I think along the way, Bernie did grow into that progressive populist candidate and talked more about preserving Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and expanding Medicare to cover everybody and keeping government strong enough to protect working people against the depredations of corporations and predatory capitalists. And now we're getting the opposite of that, of course. Now, I think that when people are running for office, it's maybe the populist note in people's hearts that people are trying to play. They call themselves outsider. They're Washington outsiders. And maybe that's trying to harness some of that populist energy. Is that your take? Well, yeah, uh, people do tend to identify with the outsiders and the underdogs. And I think that has a certain amount of cachet. But then again, Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, and he even campaigned against Hillary Clinton's ties to Goldman Sachs, and then he brings in a half dozen Goldman Sachs executives, or former executives, to staff his White House and cabinet posts. So he's not interested in being an outsider, and he's not interested in challenging the establishment. He just wants to get his hooks into it. And a populist should believe that the government needs a regulatory framework like the EPA, which Trump's cabinet officials want to dismantle. They want to get rid of all the rules that would protect a small farmer or a worker or a consumer from capitalists that could care less whether they get poisoned or their streams are ruined or clean, the air is foul, or as long as Mar-a-Lago still has a good water supply, they're not too worried about the rest of us. You know, we're doing a little bit of a, a visit to the historical situation, which I think is important. People know far too little about history and what got us to where we are and what's been useful along the way. I mean, you talk about the populist movement originating in the late 1800s, the 1880s or so. And there are, the, of course, the robber barons and the Gilded Age and all of that. And if people don't know what that is, they should go look up their history books and catch up on that. But that leads eventually into the progressive period, I think maybe the 1920s, going into the 30s, and then we get New Deal. And you've mentioned FDR and the New Deal movement, 1930s, 40s. How much was that populist? Well, I think it got a lot of its strength from the populist movement and, and a lot of their best ideas. For example, the populists were the ones that originally came up with direct election of senators and women's suffrage, income tax and regulation of the railroads, too, with the Interstate Commerce Act. A lot of those bills were actually passed under Teddy Roosevelt and the progressive movement, but they adopted much of the populist agenda in the early 20th century. 
and then really the populist movement kind of filtered into the Democratic Party and, and much of the country. You know, I have a brother who's uh, conservative, quite quite conservative, especially compared to me, and he um, published a quote, I think, it, I don't remember who it's supposed to be from, but the quote said something that, you know, you want to bankrupt a system, give the common people the right to write their benefits into law, you know, because each of us is going to say, yeah, well, I should get this much back from the government and without much concern for what's going into the government in terms of income. Now, I think we've seen corporations doing that, that somehow a number of candidates, they run for office and say that what they're going to do to improve the country is to cut taxes for the wealthy. Obviously, it hasn't worked, hasn't helped. But you could, of course, bankrupt the country by giving an extra raise to all of the poor people, too, right? I mean, it can work either way. There's a lot more poor people than there is rich people, but, of course, the rich people have way more money and, uh, you know, many tens of thousands as much as any of us does. Yeah. Well, uh, of course, you know, a lot of people thought Henry Ford would bankrupt Ford Motor Company when he gave his workers what amounted to a living wage back in the early 20th century. And instead, it made the workers more productive, and ultimately Ford Motors became more profitable. But the thing is, you can't do a lot of these spending programs and cut taxes at the same time. That's what doesn't make sense. Somebody has to pay for the government. And the Republicans have gone for years on this uh, almost theological attachment to the idea that if you cut taxes, it will raise government revenue. And, you know, we tried it during the George W. Bush administration, and it didn't work. And now they've tried it at the state level in Kansas and nearly run Kansas out of business by cutting taxes. And now they've had to cut back their schools and uh, medical care, and it's just a mess. But Sam Brownback, the governor, won't admit that it's a, a mistake. And I, I think, isn't Scott Walker trying to do the same thing? Oh, yeah. Same thing here, and it's having its very bad effects. There's a reason why recovery in Wisconsin has lagged behind any of the states that have kept their progressive policies. Including uh, Minnesota, just across the Mississippi River. They raised taxes, and their economy was going great guns. And in Illinois, they raised taxes, and they were doing well until then then they elected a Republican governor there who uh, refuses to sign a budget bill. I think they've been without a budget for now going on two years. Like I say, it's almost the Republican Party really is becoming something of a cult, believing in uh, voodoo economics. So make clear for us what is the difference between populism and mob rule, because they could overlap, certainly. Well, yeah, but populism is just a sense that the government should work on the behalf of the common people rather than the wealthy people. For most of our nation's history, it was the mob that was ruling was the landed gentry, <laughs> the planters uh, in the South, and the industrialists in the North. So we just feel like people need to vote their pocketbooks and their interests. And ultimately, we think working people and, and small farmers and small businesses, what's good for Main Street is good for uh, the country as a whole. Populism isn't the same thing as demagoguery, but demagoguery is a way to get people's blood boiling. And that's what I think Donald Trump was successful at, is appealing to racist feelings, uh, reactions against President Obama, resentment against gains that were made by black and uh, Latino people and gay people during the Obama administration. 
and the loss of industrial jobs as trade deals made it more profitable for corporations to ship their manufacturing overseas. So is it any coincidence that the Progressive Populist, which you're the editor for, that it originated in 1994? I mean, that's kind of NAFTA time, isn't it? Yeah, it's probably a coincidence that it happened to come at that time. I kind of had wanted to start a magazine like this, and my brothers had a community paper in Storm Lake, Iowa, you know, a hometown paper, the twice-weekly paper. And so they wanted at least one of their printing customers who would actually pay his bills. So they got me to start the Progressive Populist, and we started out as a monthly newspaper and we run syndicated columns by writers like Jim Hightower and at that time Molly Ivins and some other writers. And then we have some writers that we've developed on our own. So about half of them are, are original writers and the others are syndicated. And certainly NAFTA was a big issue when we did get started. I edit the paper here in near Austin, Texas, and my brothers print it and mail it out of Storm Lake, Iowa. We have a national circulation of about a 10,000 people. So we try to raise hell and agitate on behalf of the little guy. Where would Harry Truman, President Harry Truman, where would he lie relative to your outlook? He has a little bit of populist cachet to him. Oh, sure. Yeah. He had a lot of populist instincts because really the Midwest, I think, is one of the cradles of populism. And, and there still is a lot of populist instinct in Iowa and Missouri and Kansas and Nebraska. And probably in Wisconsin. And Truman would be, I think, considered a moderate populist. Of course, then he got in a rivalry with Henry Wallace, who would also be considered a progressive populist. And when Franklin Roosevelt dropped Wallace from the ticket in 1944, and then Roosevelt died making Truman president, Wallace decided to run against him as a progressive candidate in 1948. And of course, Truman defeated both him and uh, the Republican candidate, Tom Dewey. And he did that by running a populist-style campaign and looking after organized labor and uh, small businesses and giving the Republicans hell. Earning him the title, give him hell, Harry. Yeah, yeah. and Wallace, Roosevelt and the establishment Democrats forced Wallace off the ticket because they thought he was too left-wing for their taste. And he was considerably left of Harry Truman. But then after that, the populist movement kind of declined during the 50s. That's when it became identified with more of the conservative segregationist movement. So how did it go into decline? You would think that the people being in power, I mean, it just makes sense, but there must be strategies to work to make people vote against their own self-interest. Well, part of it was that the Democrats kind of co-opted the populist movement, and times were so good that most everybody was making money after the war. Plants were booming, rebuilding the country and rebuilding Europe after World War II. Labor was able to negotiate uh, with the bosses and get insurance benefits, which kind of took the pressure off establishing a national health program at that time, which Truman wanted to do. But then the Republicans passed the Taft-Hartley Act in, uh, I think, 1950 or 51, which Truman vetoed. That allowed states to become what they call right to work or also right to fire <laughs> employees and uh, made, made it harder for unions to organize and maintain power in those states. 
So that was a setback for organized labor. But the unions remained fairly strong in industries like the automobile industry and other big factories until about the 70s when economic conditions kind of put them under pressure. And then in 1980 and 81, with the election of Ronald Reagan, that's what really, uh, there was an organized effort to crush the populist movement at that time. Organized labor is what they were really crushing. But also left-wingers and people who the power elites thought had too much time on their hands, (laughs) raising trouble for them. And that's when the uh, global trade movement was created and the effort to really establish a world trade organization to reduce trade barriers and make it easier for people to move factories overseas and kind of grease the skids to send jobs outside of this country. Let's drink to the hardworking people. Let's drink to the lowly of birth. Raise your glass to the good and the evil. The salt of the earth. Say for the common good soldier. Spare thought for his backbreaking work. Say for his wife and his children. Who burn the fires and who still till the earth. When I search a crowd swirling mass of gray, black and white they don't look real to me in fact they look so strange raise your glass to the hard-working people let's drink to the uncounted heads let's think of the wavering millions In case you didn't recognize her, that was Joan Baez performing a piece of Salt of the Earth, much in tune with the progressive populist topic for today's Spirit in Action. Folks, we're speaking with Jim Cullen, editor of the Progressive Populist website, populist.com. He's my guest today for Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. Website, northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find 11 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find links to our guests when you want to track down Jim Cullen. Easy way to get there. There's more information and links to articles on the progressive populace that we'll be talking about shortly. There's also a place to post comments. And just like populists, we want feedback from the people. The people have a very important role in these broadcasts. So please contact me. This program in particular was recommended to me by Damien O'Brien, who's on the board for Northern Spirit Radio. And you can have your voice included by posting comments as you visit Northern Spirit Radio. There's also a place to donate. That is how this full-time work is supported exclusively by your donations. It's not by government and it's not by corporations. It's because you believe in this kind of work and support it. Please make it happen by donating to us. But even more important, I'd say support your local community radio station and your local publications of other media too, like the Progressive Populist. 
It's so important that we get the word out. It's so important that we have communications to have our voice heard and united. And so please start by supporting those institutions. Again, we're talking with Jim Cullen. He's down in Texas, near Austin. Originally, though, an Iowan, which makes him a good, dependable Midwesterner. And I... I don't know, you know, I tend to think of the Midwest, of course, Wisconsin and Minnesota as this kind of liberal progressive bastions in the country. We don't normally think about that when we think about Texas, but the populist movement had an important role there too, didn't it? Oh yeah, the populists really uh, gained a lot of political power in the 1880s and 90s, and they elected several governors around that time that were populist and were responsible for creating what's now called the Texas Railroad Commission, which originally regulated railroads, and that was a revolutionary thing at that time in in the 1890s. Now it regulates oil and gas production, and it's pretty much a wholly owned subsidiary of big oil now. But uh, (laughs) in the early days, it did have useful regulatory function. And there was a kind of a struggle for a long time between the conservative Democrats and the liberal Democrats through the 70s. And Lyndon Johnson was kind of considered, he, he was a conservative, but with a, a populist streak. And that, you can see that in the great society. For a long time, people overlooked the good things he did, such as passing Medicare and Medicaid and the education bills and the war on poverty because he was identified so closely with the Vietnam War. But now, uh, with the benefit of time, I think we're able to look back and appreciate the things that he did do, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, which were things that John Kennedy laid a lot of the groundwork for, but Lyndon Johnson was the one that stepped up after Kennedy was assassinated and pushed those bills through Congress because he was so familiar with the legislative process. He was probably able to do a better job than Kennedy would have been able to do had he lived. Kennedy came to Dallas with Johnson in an effort to repair the rifts between the conservatives and the liberals in the Democratic Party in 1963. The liberal at that time was uh, Ralph Yarborough, who was a senator, United States senator, and he was a a great progressive populist. And uh, unfortunately, of course, Kennedy was killed and Johnson went on. But Republicans at that time were still a minor party, and uh, winning the Democratic nomination was tantamount to election through the you know, early 80s in much of the state. And it was only really in the 90s that Republicans overtook the Democratic Party. Since 1994, Democrats have been unable to win a statewide election. I think a lot of it is pushed back by a lot of the resistance to civil rights and voting rights laws. Democrats lost a lot of their power. As people moved in from other parts of the country, the suburbs kind of became the bastion of the Republican Party. People moved in that weren't used to the Democratic power structure. And, you know, that was probably a healthy thing to create a two-party system in the state. But then as a reaction to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, finally a lot of people felt like Democrats had become too liberal, (laughs) had embraced uh, the liberal agenda, put quote marks around it. You say that like that might be a bad thing. Yeah. Well, that's that's (laughs) the way a lot of those people, you know... I thought the Democrats were doing the right thing, but particularly in 1994, I think it was, right after the Democrats passed the assault weapons ban, there was a big reaction in Texas that that they were going to come and collect all your guns. 
And of course that was nonsense, but people get so emotional about gun rights that a lot of them started voting Republican, and they haven't turned back since then. And I think a lot of older people are uneasy about the gay rights movement. You know, that was a sensitive issue, particularly in East Texas, where uh, the joke was that Governor Ann Richards, who was a liberal governor in the early 90s, that she was going to send the gays out to seize your guns. Because gays are known to be so violent, right? No, that, yeah, uh, <laughs> that, you know, it was just a, the Republicans were kind of raising that as a clear and present danger. The Democrats were going to turn Texas gay and uh, gun-free. So, uh, you know, uh, the state has gone Republican and, Right now, uh, it's got an almost two-thirds control of the legislature, and all the statewide elected officials are Republican. And the Democrats really need to assess what they could do to turn that situation around. And I think what they need to do is adopt a populist economic agenda once again and convince these middle-class people that they do need a populist government to look after their interests rather than the interests of the oil companies and the billionaires. That kind of presumes, Jim, that the government that you have there right now is not populist, and you can say that pretty clearly? Oh, yeah. Sometimes they'll use populist rhetoric around time of the election, but uh, after the elections, they revert to business as usual, and then they'll raise things like right now uh, there's a big fight over this bill to make it illegal for transgender people to go to the bathrooms other than the gender is on their birth certificate. And nobody thought that was a big problem before Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick decided that it was a big problem and uh, basically said it was going to be his top priority in this legislative session. So the Senate has passed the bill. Luckily, the House Speaker, who is a relatively moderate Republican, says he's not that interested in bathroom issues this year. He thinks the state has bigger issues to settle. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, the same thing happened in North Carolina, which used to be a relatively sane state in the South, till the Republicans took over there and passed their own bathroom bill and also made it illegal for cities to protect gay people and uh, minorities. So this is a challenge to identify when uh, the difference between populism and demagoguery, I guess, and get people to uh, vote for their own self-interest rather than being led around by uh, sensational topics that are merely distractions. So it's clear to me that there's a question of economic power and economic well-being that's part of this, which can be very different than concerns about, shall we say, minority rights, whether those are gays or transsexuals or blacks or any number of minorities. Yeah. Uh, the Democratic Party has championed, and I think rightly so, a number of issues of protections for a lot of minorities. And they've taken a lot of hits about this as well. How does that fit on a populist or a progressive populist scale or litmus test? Well, I think progressive populism is compatible with all these civil rights initiatives, but it does create an opportunity for a more conservative populism to assert itself, you know, raising these issues that whatever blacks or Hispanics or gays gain is at your expense for the rest of the country. And I think that's what the Trump campaign stood for, taking advantage of the 
ill will that uh, a lot of displaced white workers had for others who they consider their competition for jobs. Again, folks, we're talking with Jim Cullen about the progressive populist and website populist.com. There's a link on nordenspiritradio.org. We've talked a lot about history. We're talking about political theories. I'm particularly interested, because this is, after all, spirit in action, about moral or ethical roots or fruits of the populist movement, or the lack of it. I mean, do you see it somehow as more connected with being ethical, with being moral? And, of course, we're, again, we're talking about progressive populism here. Yeah, well, I think populism is connected to you know, moral or social justice. I would argue that it's more connected than uh, some of the other more what you would consider mainstream politics, which believes that basically whatever enriches the wealthy people is best for the country. We believe that whatever helps the working class and the middle class is best for the country. Now, we, we, we do believe in the separation of church and state, but, you know, just general morality, I think, is something that we also believe in. You know, you could make a an argument, and I'm not really going to make it, but you could make the argument that uh, since uh, love of money is the root of all evil, that if we can keep people poor, that, that will keep them more moral or something. <laughs> I, uh, but But on the other hand, that means that Donald Trump and other rich folks have to carry all the weight of our sins. Yeah. But then again, we also know that Jesus Christ was on the record on how he felt about bankers. Uh, He took took a whip to him whenever you get the chance, and that's kind of the populist point of view towards bankers, too. Jesus Christ is a populist. I like the vision. (laughs) Yeah, and he also said, blessed are the poor, and whatever you do to the least of my brethren, that you do to me. That's a part of the Gospels that the Republicans don't like to cite. They go straight from Leviticus in the Old Testament to the epistles of St. Paul and skip the Gospels almost entirely. I'm afraid that's far too true. <laughs> uh, one of the places I was able to get to know you a bit before I had you on the program, Jim, was a video that I saw you speaking at the UU, the Unitarian Universalist organization down there, I think in Austin. Yeah. And I think you spoke there at least twice. You must. Was this by popular acclaim you were welcome back? Uh, was this part two? Yeah, it took them a couple of years to get over the first one, I think. And But they, yeah, they let me back. And uh, I have a friend who was the public affairs coordinator for the church there. So uh, they signed me up to come speak to them. And what were you speaking about? Could you talk a little bit about what that was and why Unitarian Universalists wanted to hear you? Well, there wasn't all that much having to do with the church. It was mainly a public affairs forum. And so I I just talked more about progressive populism in the state of Texas politics and went along some of the same lines, naturally, that we've talked about here today. You may be familiar with the book, What's the Matter with Kansas by Tom Franks who was talking about how Kansas voters have been, in Frank's view, kind of hoodwinked into voting Republican when it's against their economic interests, but that there's a good explanation for it because Democrats haven't been able to convince voters that they're really looking after their interests. And the same thing occurs in Texas, and also, I would say, 
I would dare say, in Wisconsin. Uh, I think Scott Walker has hoodwinked you for years now into thinking that cutting taxes and cutting the power of unions will restore Wisconsin to prosperity. And it hasn't happened so far, and if experience is any indicator, it won't happen. The time of the greatest prosperity in the United States was when labor unions were at their peak in the 50s, and you can trace the decline of the middle class in the United States to the 70s when unions started losing their influence and weren't able to negotiate the kind of benefits that they were in the past. So restoration of labor unions, uh, I think, is really needed to help the middle class restore itself because we know wealthy people aren't going to do it on their own. Well, that makes the point. What are the planks of the program for progressive populism? What do we really need to improve this country? If you're a real progressive populist, what are the points that you're going to be making about the direction this country should be taken? One of them is restoration of unions. Yeah, and that's in opposition, by the way, to what the Republicans are planning. They'd like to uh, create a right-to-work law nationwide to do what they have at, on the statewide level in many states. I hate that name. Yeah, it's misleading. Like I say, it should be right to get fired. (laughs) We need to find a good name like that. If they can come up with deceptive names like death panels for something that is actually... Death panels belong with the insurance companies, of course. We know that. If they can come up with names that somehow stick in people's minds, we should come up with something much better than the absolutely ludicrous right to work. Yeah, but we just need a, a return to the laws that allowed employees to form a union and then required the businesses to negotiate with the unions to set fair labor and environmental standards. And right now it, it's hard even to get a consensus among Democratic politicians about that. So what other planks should there be? Well, we think really, if you look at what Bernie Sanders ran on, uh, we endorse most of that wholeheartedly. You know, expand Medicare to cover everybody. Uh, Stop fooling around with these insurance companies who have shown that they can't provide universal coverage on their own. If the Republicans say the Affordable Care Act didn't work, then in my mind that's an indictment as much of the private insurance system as it is of the way President Obama administered the program. So I'd say the insurance companies have had their chance and failed, and so we need to expand Medicare, which is a highly efficient way of providing health coverage. For our most complicated patients, the people over 65 are the ones with the greatest health challenges. So uh, covering the rest of the people under 65 ought to be a cinch. And we can do it for the amount of money that we spend now on insurance to the private insurance companies. We could actually expand the benefits for Medicare. And then we wouldn't have to worry about Medicaid either because everybody would be covered under Medicare. And we do need to renegotiate trade agreements so that people can't just export manufacturing jobs overseas where workers will be uh, forced to work for substandard wages and and bad environmental conditions. We should only harmonize our trade rules with developed nations that do comply with labor standards and health and environmental standards. And if we need to restore tariffs, so be it. A lot of people think that tariffs are obsolete nowadays, but if that's what's needed to protect American manufacturing, we ought to reconsider it. Any other essential planks to this plan? Well, basically just legislation should be considered on how it affects working people and mom-and-pop businesses and family farmers and ranchers. We shouldn't be encouraging monopolization. We should resume enforcing anti-monopoly legislation and busting up monopolies. 
which we haven't been doing since the Reagan administration. And we also should restore the fairness doctrine so that commercial broadcasters are required to show all points of view on their news and information programs. Since the fairness doctrine was practically abolished in the 1980s, we've seen 90 to 95 percent of the talk radio stations are conservative and right-wing stations. It's very difficult to find uh, liberal or progressive talkers on the radio or TV around the country, and we just think that's terrible. Uh, You know, we know from the elections that the country is fairly evenly divided between liberal and conservative, but certainly the talk show lineups don't reflect that around the country. Well, I think what we need to do is make Northern Spirit radio programs go on every station nationwide, and then we'd have the balance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that'd be a good, good start. And, of course, if the progressive populist was carried in every mailbox, we'd have a good start, too. I wanted to ask you just a few other areas. Uh, Number one, you include 40 to 50 columnists twice a month. You put out the progressive populist, and there's some 40, 45 articles per issue. Yeah. How do your contributors compare with something like Huffington Post? Now, they again, they're doing it online, but is the content, is it a lot of overlaps here? Are there contributors to both of you that are, are carried by both of you? Yeah, we do carry some of the contributors to the Huffington Post in our paper and also Salon.com. We use some of their stories. And then many of them are syndicated through various syndication companies. And then others we deal with individually. So who are some of the contributors you have that are unique or almost unique, whatever, to the progressive populist? Well, there's Margot McMillan, who is from uh, rural Missouri, and she talks about sustainable agriculture. Bob Burnett is a former uh, Silicon Valley executive, and now he talks about progressive organizing. And oh, we've had, uh, since the beginning, some of our original writers are Jim Hightower, who's kind of coined the term progressive populism. I knew him from when I worked at the Texas Observer here in Austin. He's a former agriculture commissioner. He appears frequently at the Bob Fest. He's an agitator. Andy spoke at an event for Myron Buckles. I've had him on the program. He's a personal friend. Jim Hightower came up and spoke in favor of Myron uh, just before the election. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, that didn't mean, he didn't get the nomination, but he should have. Yeah, and Jim's a good guy. Uh, all you get have to do is get him to start talking, and then uh, the trouble is trying to get him to stop. But uh, he's a good rabble-rouser. And uh, we get uh, Ralph Nader's been with us since the beginning, too. And that has been a little troublesome after the 2000 election when he ran for president as a Green Party candidate. But his point was basically the people deserved a choice, and he, he gave them the choice. And it, it wasn't his fault that the Supreme Court handed the election to George W. Bush. And other people we have are Jesse Jackson, uh, Dean Baker, who's a progressive economist. Dave Zirin is a... Uh, sports editor for The Nation, and we run his column, too. So that means you can get your sports fix also from the progressive populist? Yeah, you probably still need to check your local sports page because we don't run that many sports stories. But yeah, Dave Zirin generally uses sports as a jumping-off point to uh, rant against some abuse of athletes, mainly. I'm kind of thinking that the only sports team, a football team at least, that you could talk about as a progressive populist would be the Green Bay Packers, since they are actually community-owned. and Oh, yeah. They're differently organized. They're, they're progressive populists, I think. 
Yeah, well, I, I don't know if you'd call them progressive populists, but uh, they certainly are uh, community-owned, and I understand the NFL has changed its rules to prevent that from ever happening again. But, uh, yeah, I, I, the Packers are my team, so even though I live down here in Cowboys country. Whoa, that must have been sensitive this past year. <laughs> so, you know, there's something else I've been wondering about. I think that progressive populism, it would be good to know if a candidate rates that way. That, that might be a good measure. Is there any way to see the progressive populist rating of particular candidates in the same way that you can go and see how they're rated environmentally or by the economists or whatever? Is there anywhere where we can get a good progressive populist rating of the candidates? And if not, why don't you make that your next article? Well, that's a good idea. We don't really have the resources to do that, I'm afraid, but uh, occasionally we will try to do a hybrid uh, rating of people, generally by using their AFL-CIO rating and uh, maybe the Democratic Socialist rating and a few other liberal rating groups. And there are some websites that attempt to do things like that. I, I can't call out their names right now, but you know, there are just some candidates that we sometimes identify that are clearly progressive populists or at least occasionally are progressive populists when they can be. And, you know, there is in the House, the Congressional Progressive Caucus are generally progressive populists. That's the one that Keith Ellison and uh, Raul Grijalva co-chair. So we do have a few go-to guys or gals that we can track down. Yeah, and there were about, I would say, between a dozen and 20 Democratic senators that you could consider solid progressive populists. Russ Feingold was probably one of them. Yeah, and that's really a shame that Wisconsin couldn't put him back in the Senate, but I guess that was even more shocking than the fact that Hillary got beat there. Yeah, it was. Well, I see that we have to get off the phone here shortly, Jim. I do want to thank you for joining us. Folks, we've been speaking with Jim Cullen. He's editor of The Progressive Populist. He's down near Austin, Texas, although it gets printed by his brothers up by Storm Lake, Iowa. The Storm Lake Times is their paper. He's a veteran daily newspaper reporter in Texas and in Louisiana. He was associate editor of the Texas Observer at one point and He's been producing The Progressive Populist since 1994. 10,000 people get it. If you go to populist.com, you can find out how to subscribe yourself and join people who are looking for a better way for the United States to run itself. And if you uh, send us your uh, address, we'll be glad to send you a sample copy. You can call it to 1-800-205-7067. Say that again, one 800 205 so if you call in your address or you can email to populist at usa.net, you'll be able to get your free copy of The Progressive Populist. Jim, thanks so much for the good work. We need this kind of agitation. We need this getting this information out there. I'm thankful also for all your contributors, and I look forward to good things in the future. Thanks so much for joining us for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you. We know there's a lot of populists out there, and sometimes they just need a reminder that there are others out there that feel the same way, particularly now that we're organizing resistance to Donald Trump. I think a lot of people are encouraged to find that others feel the same way. Together we're much stronger. Thanks so much, Jim. Okay, well, thank you.
Populist.com is their website, or use the phone number that Jim Cullen just shared. We'll end with a portion of an excellent rallying song that Ken Longquist put out at the time of the Wisconsin Uprising in 2011, a great progressive populist movement. It's called This Is. Big thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. Ken Longquist's song, This Is. I don't care how hard it seems People have to chase their dreams Yesterday's behind, tomorrow is still downstream This is our place and time This is your world and mine This is our place and time Music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.